By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So this is part two of our Swing Your Swing discussion. So if you haven't listened to part one, I think it would be pretty relevant if you go back to that episode. It came out, I believe, last week, or at least that was our plan. And you and I talked about why we liked that phrase in that episode, but conceded that there's multiple ways to interpret it, and perhaps there's a dark side to Swing Your Swing. So we didn't quite finish... Adam has a lot of notes <laughs> on this topic. We didn't quite finish our pros episode, so I guess we'll start off with that and then we'll we'll veer into the cons. So let's get straight into it because I know you have a lot to say here. So I'm going to let you lead off with where you wanted to pick up from last time. Yeah, we're going to try and balance the whole argument this episode, but I still have some of the stuff to finish from from the last stuff. And you said the pros. Well, actually, I'm going to talk about pro golfers at the moment. Mm. So continuing with the pros for pros. So when you look at the pros, some of the best pros in the world, like Tiger didn't copy Jack, Nicholas, like their swings are very, very different. Jack didn't copy Hogan. You know, Hogan had a very rounded swing. Jack was very upright. Tiger was somewhere in between. Hogan was a little bit more laid off. Jack was a little bit more across the line. Tiger was more new. Well, Tiger actually varied throughout the season, so uh, throughout his life season. Uh, so, you know, no, no swing on tour is the same, even if there are many similarities, which we'll talk about in the moment. But they swung, they swung effectively. And we talked about how 
looking at old footage of like McElroy and Tiger, even from when they were it's like kind of five, six, seven, eight years old or what the earlier earliest footage is, it looks like that player. You can tell that's a McElroy swing. You can tell that's a Tiger swing. And even when Tiger changed his motion over time, it still looked like Tiger's DNA. Yeah, that was one of our main points was that there's some unique identifier that you can hang on to. And I think we all have that in some regard. And and that was, you know, on face value, if we are analyzing or interpreting how many different ways you could take this phrase, swing your swing, that was one of the reasons we liked it is because it's acknowledging that we are all unique snowflakes in this game. We all have our own fingerprint and trying to fit into someone else's swing. So Tiger trying to swing like Jack was probably not going to work for him. And maybe he wouldn't have had the same career. And there's plenty of examples of that. So that's one way of interpreting the phrase. And look at how hard it is as well for the pros to make small changes to their swings. So they'll show a picture of Tiger throughout the years. Yeah, he did make some big changes. If you look at, over the course of maybe a three-year period, there were some reasons. Well, I say big changes, to be honest. You can make that change in a minute. Like if someone asks me to make a swing that looks like Matt Wolf, I could do it. If someone make, asked me to make a swing that looks like Furyk, I could copy it close enough or Montgomery or something like that. So you can make huge changes to your swing very quickly. That doesn't mean you're going to perform well with it. And that's why when you look at the best in the world on the course, their swings don't change a huge amount. It takes them years to make a few degrees here, a few degrees there. And so, and these are guys who are practicing sometimes 10 hours a day, maybe even more for some people for many years and they've got high body awareness as well so if these guys are making having a hard time changing their swings i'm not saying it's an impossibility but i'm just saying you know there's there's a trade-off to making new swing mechanics and the trade-off is well several of them but one of them is you can de-skill yourself and you can hit it worse even if you get the mechanics looking like what you want them to look like Otherwise, the best in the world would just instantly change the swing to what they want it to look like because they can do it. They can put themselves in positions, but obviously they, they don't play with that because they don't hit it better with that necessarily. That comes with time when they they get used to it. It's kind of like jumping into, you know, going back to our car analogy. If you jump into a new car, a new swing, it's going to take you time to get used to it. Even if that car is better, you still have to get used to how it operates. Same with a golf swing as well. MM Golf Studios, he's, he's someone who follows us on Twitter. I often see his tweets. He often tweets very good stuff. Follow him. He mentioned some good examples like Ricky Fowler. Yeah, that's a recent one that comes to mind. And I think you said you didn't see much of a, a swing change in him, right? So you saw... Well, yeah, I remember DNA. he was... When you look at Ricky Fowler, when he first kind of came on tour and, and started to do better and finally broke through and won and then had those all those top fives in the majors, he was like, his hands were so laid off inside. I don't want to mess up the technical terms, but I think people know what Ricky Fowler's swing looked like. It was very unorthodox. And then the past few years, I think he was consciously trying to get away from that. And he's kind of I don't want to say disappeared, but he struggled for a bit. 
And I remember watching him like a year or two ago where he said like, oh, I think, you know, a lot of the changes I made and I watched them. I mean, it still looks pretty similar. I see some difference, but, you know, obviously he's trying to do something different and be less laid off, but it didn't look that much different. But his results were like far worse. Like he used to be a really well-rounded, good ball striker who was at the top of a lot of important categories on strokes gained. And now it seems like he's trying to get back to that. I think he's back with Butch Harmon, who is the type of instructor who generally doesn't tweak with those things too much. Ricky's an interesting example. Again, I don't know 100% what's true or not, but as a casual observer, I was like, he doesn't look all that different, even though he's trying to do something different, but something's not connecting here. Yeah, I mean, there's two there's two ways you could look at Ricky's swing. He still looks like Ricky. Yes. And from your non-instructor point of view, you could look at his swing and say, yeah, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, I could, like I said, I could make a bigger change in three seconds with someone if I ask him to do something. So it's not a huge change, really. But on a pro level, it is a big change when you look at yeah, the minutiae sure of like, it. Yeah. You used to have like a Matt Wolf-esque takeaway and then he used to get to the top and really shallow it and drop the arms behind him and then rotate hard through impact. So, you know, very Matt Wolf-esque, I suppose. And he's softened a lot of those tendencies. Everything's more neutral takeaway, more neutral at the top, less underplaying on the way down. And so, yeah, he's just softened a lot of those tendencies. So from a, an instructor perspective and at a pro level, it's a huge change. And it's a change in the right direction, or most people would say it's a change in the right direction. Most people would look at those two swings and they would, every day, they would take the post change swing. Yet we know that he's not the same player post change. That was the criticism of him years ago was that, oh, Ricky's overrated because, you know, he got all the sponsorship deals and stuff like that. He was kind of a golfer who crossed over into other parts of, of pop culture. So we got a lot of attention. And I think this is before he won the players. So people are like, well, he hasn't really won anything. And then, you know, he did win the players. He won some more tournaments and he had that year where I think he was top five in all majors and almost one or two of them. So he was trending in the right direction. But I think a lot of people said, well, he's never going to do it unless he fixes that part of his swing. And I guess he did try to do that and it went totally backwards. So Again, you don't know these things for sure. Maybe there's something else going on in his life. He's older. He got married. I have no clue. But it seemed like he tried to address the criticisms in his swing, and it did not yield the results that his critics seemed to have said would have happened if he addressed them. It, it, it did the opposite. Yeah. This is a difficult one because there are more examples out there of pro players or good players who've tried to change their swings and gone the other way. This is hard to hear, and lots of people will hate hearing this, but you don't hear of those stories because when a player falls from grace and they go out of the top top 10, top 100, top 300 in rankings, you don't hear their story anymore, so you don't know where they've gone. Some big players, you might hear of that, like if a Spieth drops out, people are going to question that, but there's so many players who just fall from grace so you don't hear their stories. You're more likely to hear the other story, the rarer example of someone who is a decent player, changes their swing and gets better. You're more likely to hear that story because that player's rising up. They're becoming more famous because they're getting better. So like a Nick Faldo, for example, you know, he he's probably the most notable example of someone who did 
change his swing. In other words, he didn't swing his swing and he had a great amount of success after it. Even on that, though, I think Faldo has said that he wish he hadn't done so many swing changes. So it's just a really interesting one. There's is a what is that the survivorship bias? Yeah, you don't know. We had Rick Fair on the show who had a pretty good PGA Tour career, and then he said he tried to tinker too much, and he's like, I just totally lost it at the end of my yeah. career. He's like, I, I wish I never tinkered. I wish I never stayed the natural player. You hear a lot of these stories. I mean, you look at. A lot of the best players in the world, they do kind of have John Rahm, Cam Smith, Zalatoris, Matt Fitzpatrick, like Spieth. These are all not Victor Hovland. I'm just looking at the list right now. I know the OWGR has gone crazy. Cameron Young, Matsuyama, Bryson, (laughs) Joaquin Neiman. I mean, you just go down the list and I'm like thinking each of those guys are like, they all have like really unique looking moves. And it's not cookie cutter. I mean, you think Adam Scott is like the model where everyone's like, oh my God, that's just perfect. Perfectly on plane. Like nothing could ever go wrong with that swing. You'd think by that logic that he would have the best strokes gained data. He didn't. You know, if, if it was all about pretty aesthetics. Good. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, was, I think his, his career would have been a little different if he had the strokes game putting, but he was a pretty damn good driver and iron player for a very long time. But yeah. when I think of pro golfers, I think more personality and uniqueness to a lot of swings than than like cookie cutter more orthodox moves you know i guess someone like patrick cantlay is someone i would look at and be like okay that looks like a very clean conventional golf swing where they say oh it doesn't have any moving parts what could go wrong with it and it doesn't seem much goes wrong with it he's a damn good player yeah there are players on mini tours who have beautiful swings really beautiful swings who are obviously good players because it takes a lot of time to develop a good looking swing as well that's one of the the myths here that people they look at correlation and causation and they say oh that player is good he has a good looking swing therefore if you make your swing look good you will be a better player and there's an element of truth to that but a huge part of that is in order to make your swing look good you often have to put in 10,000, 20,000 worth of hours. And so anybody's going to be good after that, usually. There's a correlation causation issue there. And and the opposite end of the spectrum is players who don't look good, who are great. Nicholas or Dustin Johnson or Mo Norman or Jim Furyk. Well, ultimately, we're going to find our way to, because I know a lot of people on the other side of this, maybe I'm jumping the gun. It's always... What if you don't look good and you don't have good results? Then what? That's the big retort to all of this. Like, yeah, John Rahm looks great. He's got his, you know, short backswing and he has the rotation necessary to achieve that. And Cameron Smith is across the line. Oh, oh, great. They're all like world-class players. They figured it out with their own unique style. Now, what about the guy at the course who is hitting it all over the map with the weird looking swing? What does he do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that is a topic, definitely. I want to get to that a little later because it's a big right, I'm topic. I'm jumping the gun. Yeah, all right. yeah. Sorry, John. Go back to your notes. Guide us along. <laughs> sorry. In regard, I got a note here on Tiger because Tiger is an interesting example. He did make uh, lots of swing changes throughout his career. One of the reasons I believe, I don't don't know exact story, but I believe one of the reasons why he split from Butch was he got to a stage where Butch is like, it's good enough. Yeah, we're done Stop here. tinkering. <laughs> and Tiger yeah. thought there's another level. And so there is that question. And obviously for an amateur, they're never going to get to this point. But it's like, when do you stop? 
Like, when is it good enough? I suppose you should get to this point as an amateur even. Like, I got to that point where I said, when is it good enough? And I'm like, well, I, I can hit the shots I want to with the swing I have. So I don't need to change it anymore. I just need to find out how to tap into my best swing more often. And in fact, one of the things that stops you tapping into your best swing more often is when you go and change and you're constantly tinkering. So those golfers who are constantly tinkering, they often complain, I'm not consistent. It's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> if you're constantly yeah. jumping into a new car all the time, how can you ever get used to one? That's what was our main topic on that episode where we were saying, beware of golf tips and YouTube and all that stuff. Is That's ultimately what I see is the golfer who is from one week to the next is trying something they saw. And in my opinion, that is not swing your swing. That's taking different puzzle piece, putting it in your swing based on something you saw. Maybe it's probably not relevant. And even if it was, they're probably not going to give it a long enough chance to make it work because they're impatient. And you know, after 10 days, they're going to go to the next tip and try something else. And ultimately, I guess we're mostly trying to help the golfers who are going at it on their own because that is the majority of golfers. And that's where I see the, the danger, you know, with Tiger, it's different because, you know, you have arguably the most driven competitive golfer of all time. And he's saying to himself, there has to be something better here. I, I can dominate even more. And we'll never know. I always wonder like, what if he did stay with Butch? Like, would he have won more majors? I don't know. It wouldn't even be possible because he wouldn't have had that type of mentality without wanting to get better and better and better. So, he was going to burn through swing coaches no matter what. There are lots of instructors, and I kind of agree with this, who think that even his pre-Butch swing was good enough. You look at some yeah, of his might stats. Have been. <laughs> yeah, when he I shouldn't say pre-Butch because he was with Butch for a long time. But let's just say his 1999s. When did he win the Masters? 97. 97, yeah. Yeah, so he won all the US juniors and then he amateurs and then he went straight to the Masters. <laughs> yeah, there's some call. If you look at some of his stats, specifically his driving stats, like he, he was using what, Persimmon Woods back then or that well, old he had a Cobra, very, yeah, Cobra It was a very Woods. small metal. I mean, he was hitting at 330 back then. I always wonder what he would have. Another question I always had, like imagine if we took that Tiger Woods and gave him like today's equipment. Oh, I mean, man. he was hitting at like 320, 330 back then with a steel shaft and a small metal head. Yeah, and he was hitting a lot of fairways as well. I think the oh, Masters, yeah. he was he like averaged over 300 yards and something like 80% fairways with that old equipment. And, you know, after he changed his swing and became less across the line at the top, less closed club face at the top, you know, his fairway percentage went down significantly. You know, for most of his career, he's only about 50% fairways and shorter as well. And so there's good call that lots of people say that if Tiger never changed at all from his Masters winning swing or his kind of 2000 year swing, he would have been just as great, if not potentially better. So maybe Tiger should have swung his own swing. <laughs> we'll never know. It's in that alternate timeline. Yeah. I mean, he was so good that he won with so many different swings, which is testament to, you know, his iron play, his strategy, his mindset, things like that. So 
And obviously, he's one of the first to come out, apart from John Daly, to blast everything over 300 yards, which we know strokes gained-wise now is... That went against the grain back then because everybody was like, no, you've got to swing it easy, hit it down there, punt it down there, 240, 250, stay in the fairway. That was Tiger's era. You know, when he first came on, he's like, nah, I'm going to blast it 330 down there and wedge it into par fives. And that's why he dominated. Eventually, people caught up. But yeah, it's just an interesting one. When do you stop tinkering? And obviously, at the pro level, that's a huge question to ask. Even at the amateur level, it is a big question to ask. Generally, my answer to that would be if your best shots are good enough, you start having to ask that question. I'm not saying that if your best shots are good enough, stop changing your swing. I'm just saying start answering that question a little bit to yourself. But we also, in terms of stats, I mean, you've done a huge amount on this, John, as well. It's like we have to remember that no swing works really i mean define works if your swing works the top players in the world are only hitting 60 percent of their fairways 60 percent of their greens in regulation the top pros are failing almost 50 percent of the time so what's the definition of a swing that works if jim furick has a bad day and only hits 40 percent fairways and 40 percent greens which happens does he then go off and go, oh, you know what? I need to re completely revamp my swing. I need to get rid of all these planes. I got more plate swing planes than Delta Airlines has planes. <laughs> There's that dark side of it as well. And, and that's tough to manage when you've got people calling your swing ugly and you have a bad day. It's tough to not listen to those voices. Yeah, I can't imagine his story... I think his father was his teacher, right? And he was, you know, they were both steadfast and kind of keeping it that way, even though I'm sure every person who saw him in junior golf and in college was like, what is going on here? And there's probably a lot of noise around him, but I stuck with it and the results are pretty damn good. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. I mean, there's obviously there's loads of, it's a big in the golf industry, the golf teaching industry. We often ask the question, if a young Jim Furyk pre-tour era, you know, before he had his, what, 70, 80 million dollars came to you and he was having a bad week, or even if he was having a good week, what would you do with his swing? And the reality is 99% of golf instructors would completely change his motion. I'm not even talking about small tweaks that would completely change the motion. Maybe I'm being too harsh there. Maybe 90% would completely change the motion. 90% well, yeah. would make some significant changes, especially back in his era before we understood more things. Now it would, might be a slightly different situation. Well, yeah. If you had a prominent player who had a swing who looked like that, then you know there's going to be whispers in the community like, oh, how does he let one of his players swing like that? And there's pressure yeah. to like – I mean, we see this in a lot of sports – you know, decision-making is kind of decided on a group level. Like the NFL is fascinating to me because for a long time, you see this in the NBA and, and golf now too with what they know about numbers and stats, you would never go for it on fourth and one or fourth and two. If you did that and you didn't get it and you turned the ball over, like your job was on the line. So no NFL coach would play aggressively. And then about probably 10 years ago, you had some of these college coaches and other coaches getting more aggressive and finally, it started to break the mold a bit. And now, if you watch the NFL playoffs this year, I mean, guys are going for it all the time. They're, they're gambling with it because they know that they're going to get it most of the time and it's worth it. So, things change. But I think that's 
what golf is like a lot, especially with the swing is there's a lot of probably group think and maybe you're, you're a little scared to go outside the box because that could damage your reputation. It might not get you other students. I get that pressure. I understand why it would exist. Yeah. I know coaches, some of the best coaches that I know, they're very open to having their players have certain stylistic elements. So they'd get a Jim Furyk and they wouldn't completely revamp it. And I think more instructors are heading that way now. We're better able to separate what's a style element and what is an actual functional element that needs to be changed. Well, yeah, because now we can see that Hey, they got this weird looking swing, but 20 years ago, we were just looking at video or instructors were. Now you could see that they're satisfying the impact fundamentals with the track man or quad and be like, you know what? These numbers are really good. Like the tolerances there are excellent. Like his face presentation, his path, like it's all A plus. Like why are we going to mess around with this? Exactly. Yeah. That makes more sense why we have more of these. Victor Hovlins and Matt Wolfs and all these other guys coming out of college who are, I think, looking more unique than ever. Yeah, I think that's a testament to how good instruction is now and how much more educated we are as coaches as to what truly matters in the golf swing and what's more of a style element, as I said. You know, I personally, I want to talk about my swing a little bit because I had an epiphany at some point in my development because I was a very textbook-esque player. You know, when I was 15 years old, I had the Faldo book, the Ledbetter book. I was videoing my swing at 15 years old on, because I wanted to. I was recording Tiger's swing and freeze-framing it and drawing on my TV, <laughs> much to my mother's disdain. But yeah, there was a point where I was struggling with an in-to-out path. I was hitting these big hooks. Out of frustration, I just said, what if I try and chop across it? And I did. I did it. I tried to chop across it, swinging way from outside to in. And I hit the most beautiful little fade for like the first time in my life. And I felt, well, what if I did a little bit of that? And then I just started pummeling these lasers with no curvature on it, which for me was very unique, having hit these big 20, 30 yards hooks onto my target all my life. And then I videoed my swing and I looked at it and it was horrible. I was taking it outside the line. I decided not to go down that route. I said, no, I want my swing to look better. So I played for another few years hitting these big old hooks, trying to figure out an alternative way. And you know what? One day I just, I don't know what it was, but I just said, screw it. I'm going to take it outside the line and I don't care anymore. And I've played my best golf since then. Just not caring how my takeaway looks. That's not to say the takeaway doesn't influence impact. It does. You can see that when I took it outside the line more, I had a more neutral path, but it wasn't textbook. So I was swinging more in a way that for me was the most natural way for me to pr produce a more neutral path. So I was, I was swinging my swing, but it wasn't textbook. And I know you're, you're the same, John, right? You perform yeah, better with that inside takeaway. Yep. It's very similar to my story. Been had, had the hooks, didn't look at it on camera, but said, well, I'm just going to keep trying to hit a little fade and over time it just, just Turned out to now it's a straightish ball flight. Yeah. But that didn't involve any video or aesthetics. That is a way to do it, right? That's one way to do it. Yeah. My game got better when I stopped videoing the swing and I just started swinging my swing. And what that means to me is I stopped focusing on how the swing looked. 
and I started focusing more on what the club does through impact. Now, as a result of that, if you look at my swing on video now versus 20 years ago, so 20 years ago, I was obsessed with making it look pretty. My swing was prettier 20 years ago. I'm a hell of a lot a better player now. And there's lots of reasons for that. But one of the things is I've ingrained emotion. I've re rehearsed and hit more repetitions with my motion now that feels natural to me. That I can, I can go out and play to a plus four handicap now, practicing maybe once a month or so. Whereas I used to have to practice 40 hours a week just to maintain a kind of two handicap 20 years ago. It's so much better for me swinging my swing, not having to think about how it looks and the mechanics and just focusing more on functional variables, the impact variables. It's just light and day for me. I'm not saying that's going to be the case for everyone. I'm just saying that this, there's, a, there's a certain truth to this phrase. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the two words that I think of are trust and ownership. You have a lot of trust in the move you're making because it feels natural and you don't have to think about it so much. And there's ownership because you're saying like, this is mine. I know some, it might look funky to some or whatever, but this is mine and I take ownership over it versus you stepping into maybe someone else's idea of how you should be swinging. And it never, maybe it feels like a rented house. It's not a house you own or maybe your, your car scenario. It's a, it's not a car that you know how to drive all that well. There's familiarity there. So I agree with that as well, but there naturally are caveats to that because you can't say that's going to work for all golfers. There has to be some type of flip side to that. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, the biggest goal of most golfers is consistency, right? They want to play, hit their best shots more consistently. And yet they're changing their swing constantly. They're jumping around from one swing model to the next or adding new pieces all the time. You, you're not going to be consistent. There's this push and pull, right? You, you almost need to explore new ground in order to hit better shots than you're currently capable of. Like if you are a huge fader of the golf ball, you're never going to hit a nice tight draw with the motion that you have. You have to explore new ground there. But then there's that drawback, there's that trade-off of if you're constantly exploring new ground, you're never building a home with solid foundations because you're constantly moving around. You're a golf nomad, a technical nomad. Let's, let's start that phrase. So yeah, in terms of consistency, stop tinkering. I've heard the term collector. I forget which instructor it was, but just someone who was around the tour a lot and they were talking about a player and he's like, yeah, he's a collector. He's he's probably got ideas from 20 different coaches over the years. He loves to collect swing thoughts. And yeah, again, the guy made a ton of money, but he never probably one of the players, I won't say his name because it was told to me in confidence, but he was a guy who people had higher hopes for and he had a good career, but never did anything significant. and. This person's belief was because he was a collector. He kept going to coach after coach after coach and saying, what do you think here? What do you think here? And ultimately, they all had different opinions because <laughs> that's how it works. You know, people have different interpretations of what you're doing. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. 
It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. I think I know which, which player you're talking about. It's interesting. You'd think that at the amateur level maybe that doesn't happen but it's even worse at the amateur level because now we have youtube and while there's many good stuff on there as we talked about in our last episode you can just collect too much information even if it's good information you can collect too much of it (laughs) well yeah yeah the algorithm is just feeding you too much too quickly forget about talking to 20 different coaches over a period of a decade probably you could talk to 20 of them in in an hour (laughs) (laughs) they're right in your living room no problem or on your phone yeah so one of the notes i got here was uh, jonathan hughes on twitter he said i think where amateurs go wrong is that we get obsessed with pretty we all want to look like adam scott yet we all recognize that different tour players they have unique moves correct function and matchups needs to be taught and that requires better instructors. I completely agree. And luckily, there are a hell of a lot of really good instructors out there who understand what is functional and they understand this concept of matchups. So the idea of matchups, I know we've done an entire episode on this, but the idea of matchups is something in the swing is not necessarily wrong, but something else later on in the swing can offset it in a good way. So I suppose this goes into what is style, what is function, and what is a matchup. So style are things that they're kind of perfectly acceptable, well within tour ranges, you know, like a Matt Wolf takeaway. It's perfectly acceptable. You can play great golf with that. And you can also play great golf with a Nancy Lopez takeaway, which is way behind her. 
but they differ from the textbook. Okay, so that's what you call a stylistic element. It's perfectly acceptable, but it's not textbook. It's not symmetrical, maybe. Some ways of swinging that can be offset by other things, we call that matchup. So Dustin Johnson's wrist angle, for example, it's not textbook. It looks strange. You know, he's got a lot of lead wrist bow or flexion. But he matches it up well. Most players would hook the hell out of it from his position. But he matches it up well with loads and loads of body rotation and a very late release. He doesn't have a lot of supination down at the bottom where he rotates his forearm. So that's his way of holding off the club face, really. He's got a really strong closed club face throughout most of the swing and then uses the body rotation and later release to hold it off. So that's one way of matching it up. My outside the line takeaway, an inside loop, that's a matchup as well. The outside the line takeaway is just a stylistic element and the inside loop is a stylistic element, but they match up, they offset each other, they neutralize each other. Similarly, I think it was Sam Sneed took it inside and came over the top more. It's just a way of matching it up. It's not necessarily bad. I think we have a tendency as definitely as amateurs, but even as coaches sometimes to want to change anything that doesn't look textbook. Even if it's just a style element, like a Matt Wolf takeaway. I've, when Matt Wolf has a bad day, you know what people on my forum say? The 360,000 amateur golfers? Yeah, he needs to change that takeaway or never <laughs> win majors. It's fine to change something if it serves a functional purpose. You know, so, so for example, if Dustin Johnson's doing his wrist action and he's hitting a lot of left misses, you know, if 90% of his misses are left, it's probably a good call to maybe soften that wrist move a little bit. It's bad to change Dustin Johnson's wrist angle if it's matched up well elsewhere, which it is. You know, if you change Dustin Johnson's wrist angle and you neutralized it or made it more textbook, he's going to require probably 10 other changes in things like his sequence, his body rotation, his forearm supination. And for what? Just to look more pretty and potentially do things exactly the same way or potentially even worse? Yes, there's a potential he could do things better, but that's very unlikely. Well, that's why I tell most people, I think, Probably one of the worst quote unquote training aids for most golfers is their phone, the camera, the video. If people play amateur swing doctor and they're videoing themselves at the range, we all know what a textbook golf swing looks like. We see some of them on TV. So obviously, if you watch a lot of golf and you've been around the game, like you know what it looks like. And you could look at your swing and say, oh, there's the 10 things that I'm doing that don't look like that. And then you could say, I'm going to try and do those prettier things and make a mess of it. I think it's a total waste of time. And the only way I would say to do it is if you are working with someone who does understand all those matchups and they can guide you through that process. I've worked on video before when I was much younger and I found it very helpful. But again, I knew exactly what we were working on and one or two parts of the swing that we were trying to get back into functional territory. I'm having some memories as a kid. I got some instruction on a video, one of the first like video systems. And it was really helpful to me actually, because he could explain exactly what was going on and we could see the feel versus real thing. But it was all under the guidance of someone who, who was helping me get better and who understood it. And most of us just don't. I don't. I don't look at my swing because of that. I don't understand enough about it. If I videoed my swing all the time, I guarantee you I would not have gotten better over the last seven or eight years versus the path I've chosen. Yeah. 
And I just that, the- that's something I feel very strongly about. I know some people like love video and think it's great. It can be in the right hands, but I think for the most part, for someone who's going at it on their own, I think it's going to do way more harm than good. Yeah, I think on the topic of matchups as well is that I think there's this new matchup is a relatively new term. It's not a new idea. We've always known that, you know, if someone does this, they can also do that and it neutralizes it. I call it functional variables. I think there's a tendency now when people hear the term matchups, they think, oh, what are the correct matchups? And there aren't. The whole concept of matchups is to actually open up more stylistic elements and say that here's why a Jim Furyk swing functions, because these things match up. Here's why a Matt Wolf swing functions. Here's why a Dustin Johnson swing functions, even though it stylistically doesn't look textbook. So it's there to actually open up more ways of swinging it functionally so that you don't have to be so obsessed with, oh, I need to swing it textbook. So that's the good way of thinking about matchups. The bad way of thinking about matchups is I often get messages now from players who say, oh, I need to find the correct matchups for me. And they might not be correct matchups. They might just be options. So for example, Dustin Johnson uses a lot of lead wrist flexion. So he has a strong grip, a lot of lead wrist flexion, which would really close the face. And then he has low supination or low forearm rotation through impact. Whereas someone else, like a Webb Simpson, has the same very strong grip as Dustin Johnson, But he uses lead wrist extension at the top, which would open the face. And then he uses more supination than Dustin Johnson would at the bottom. You don't need to know those things. I'm just saying that there are pros there who have very different set of combinations, but it's a functional combination of movement. One is not more correct than the other. It's just a different way of doing it, a different functional combination. So yeah, don't go down the road of thinking, oh, I I need correct matchups that they're a perfect set of matchups there are bad matchups that go down as well there are things that you probably don't want to do and this is why an instructor is important to see but there's not one perfect way of swinging it you can't box players into you've got to do this this and this or that that and that exactly lots and lots of functional variables yeah when you were saying all that stuff i was envisioning this is me like or <laughs> dumb and dumber when jim carrey's got his fingers in his ears like la, la. <laughs> i don't even want to know half of that stuff because it just you know you have to know it because you're helping people with their swings a lot of the times but for me it's yeah. like as a player I often i don't want to get off topic here but it's just when people try to educate themselves too much or tinker around with what it looks like and stuff like that when they really don't know that takes you away from that natural, that thing you have ownership of. I remain, what's the term I should use for swing this? Swing agnostic? Uh, yeah, not swing agnostic, willfully ignorant, <laughs> I guess is is what I try to be because it's just not my thing. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to help people with their swing. I don't want to help myself with my swing. I'd rather just do the work I'm doing and remain willfully ignorant, so to speak. Well, I probably know a lot about the swing intuitively, but I try to be respectful of all of the the years it takes to to dial it in well the real golf geeks will love all that talk about flexion extension supination but if you weren't if you did have your fingers in the ears the tldr on it is there's many ways to do it (laughs) and there's not one right way of doing it yeah that i see all the time i'm around those golfers I'm, i'm observing i'm like wow what an interesting way to move the club and looking at their ball flight it's obviously working for them And then you see the other ones where it's not working for them and I'm seeing them get into positions that are just not functional for like satisfying the impact laws. 
I see that too a lot where we see the death cross of the out to in really across people getting stuck on the trail side and their hands are flipping backwards. Like I see all of that on the course too. I don't know how to tell them to fix it precisely in a mechanical way. I have some ideas on how they can practice differently, but then you see all the other that the dark side of that and you're like, oh, something's got to happen there to fix that. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the dark sides of trying to change as well is that you can de-skill yourself or you can lose coordination. So something I don't think we've touched on this topic exactly. We've talked about how when you try and change your swing, it's like jumping into a new car and there's a, a period where you're getting used to it. This is why it's, it's not that it's bad to change your swing. It just needs to be done in the right place at the right time. So this is where periodization comes in. But it does, we know that when we think about movement more, one of the things that happens is it reduces motor synergy. So what that means is how all the moving parts as a whole are working together. So, you know, even the simple act of walking, we've got what? Flexion, extension of the ankle. We've got flexion, extension of the knee, flexion, extension of the hip joint. We have to counterbalance ourselves. We have to swing our arm a certain way to produce certain resistant rotational resistances in the body is really complex walking and golf swing is even more complex than that and when we think about one part of that we will often positively change that one part but it'll have negative consequences up and down the chain so say for example i asked you to focus on foot flexion and extension as you're walking or even something as simple as whether you land more on your heel or your toe if you were to walk thinking of that the rest of the stuff the left leg flexion the arm swing that would start to go out the window and start to be kind of weird and wouldn't fit in with the system as a whole so an example of this would be say for example you're trying to do something simple like change arc depth in the golf swing So change the depth of divot that you take. Well, there might be 20 variables that relate to that in terms of what changes arc depth. And say you were to focus on one of those variables, you might improve that. But the other 20 variables, what happens to those? We know that they get worse in terms of coordination. There's no synergy there now. And so that's why we often, when we're making a change, we might make a positive change to what we're trying to change, but there's some other negative consequences to it. Some bad things can come in. And that's why we often get bad results when we're trying to make a change, even if we're doing the right thing. So the message there is not to never change your swing, but do it in the right place, do it in the right time and understand that there are trade-offs to thinking about swing mechanics. Yeah. I always think back to other sports on this. So yeah, always the throwing the playing catch with someone. The harder you think about what your elbow is doing or something, the worse you're going to hit your target. But yeah, I guess there is a time and a place for that because again, the counter argument is like, well, what if you suck at throwing and you can't? What type of intervention do we make at that point? Can we talk mechanics? Yes, probably on some point if it's constructive and or maybe challenge someone to do something in a different way. Well, that's a perfect segue into the topic of what if your swing does suck? Yeah, that's ultimately, yeah, I do want to address all those comments I did get on Twitter because the reverse was, oh yeah, swing your swing. No, because I see swings that suck all the time and can't hit good golf shots. You're going to tell that person to keep swinging their swing. That's the natural response, of course. Like I 
totally understand that. Well, here's an interesting quote from at Club Pro Guy. You know, I think this is the joke account, right? But he's yeah, it's uh, a very, very funny. Yeah. And he said, don't swing your swing. Your swing is terrible. Swing like Louis Oosthuizen. His swing is much better. Obviously, it makes sense, right? Swing it like Louis Oosthuizen. You're going to hit it like Louis Oosthuizen. But you know what? Even if you could take the years it would take to make your swing look like Louis from a macro perspective, remember the big motion, what we see on camera, you can still hit it awful. If you were able to imitate really well and had great body awareness, say you took a 15 handicap who was maybe great in other sports, has incredible body awareness, can do exactly what you ask them to, and you said, swing it like Louis Oosthuizen, and they did, they would not hit it anything like Louis Oosthuizen, at least from a consistency level. They might hit his shot shape. They might have certain patterns, but they would, they wouldn't hit it as well as Louis Oosthuizen. They would, they'd still fat shots. They'd still thin shots. They'd still toe and heel it. They'd still miss left and right because of the micro elements. You know, the degree here or there of club face presentation, a drop of a quarter inch in arc height that you can't see on camera, but make a huge difference to the outcome. So yes, swing it like Louis Oosthuizen. It's a beautiful swing, but don't expect Louis Oosthuizen's results from that because the results are not in the macro. The results are in the micro. That's why always the, and I get why instructors do this online. They're trying to market themselves. The before and after swings, right? I think we've talked about this before where you say, oh, here was my student. This was the flaw. We worked on this for an hour. Now look at it. And (laughs) my response to that is great. I mean, it looks like they're heading in the right direction. Let's see them on the course though, because you have no idea. Like you can never tell. Like if I sent my swing to a bunch of instructors who never saw me play, I mean, who knows what they would think my handicap was. That's what my mind is always on the golf course, not the lesson T. So that's my reaction to it. It's like, great. But what happens if they don't trust that move? It looked great in practice and they were hitting good shots, but then they're on the course and it never just clicked with them. They were always fighting against it because they didn't feel like it was theirs. And sometimes it does click. I think there are a lot of good outcomes. I don't want to say that these before and after things are are totally foolish. They're not. There are plenty of examples of them making changes and then the golfer goes on the way and, well, wow, I'm better now. Great. I just don't think it's, you can assume it's true, as you said, like just because it looked better than it did before technically and maybe it satisfied a few things that now they're going to score better, which is ultimately what we're trying to do here. Well, yeah, there's three elements that I want to know. There's what the swing looks like. I see those before and after swings. And oftentimes you can look at it and go, yeah, it's cool. Looks good. But then I want to know, well, what are the results of that? Show me the trackman numbers after on the range. At least I want to see some notable improvement in that because you can make a swing look better and they can hit it all over the map now on the range. And then from there, even if the range results are better, you'd have to say, well, let's see it on the course. And obviously there's a lag time between these things as well. But it's just to reiterate the argument that swing, better looking swing does not equal better looking results. And even better results on the range do not equal necessarily better results on the course. And there might be a lag time there, but also even if you give enough time, those results might not get through. What if your swing sucks, John? What if it sucks then? What if you're horrible? Should you continue to swing your swing then? I'll just give up. 
<laughs> quit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, to be honest, I understand. And I think, again, how you're interpreting the words that, like when I said, oh, I didn't change my swing and I got better. And then, you know, Mike Carroll's response was, well, you're not, it's not the same swing anymore. And I'm like, I think it is. I mean, it changed a little bit, but technically it's not that. Yeah, I would, of course, I would admit, are my numbers different? Are, you know, like the micro movements we talked about, those are different. But I don't feel like I'm trying to do something radically different. The other responses I got was, well, you know, that worked out well for you. You became a plus two, but you're an aberration. So that doesn't work for anyone else that comes on my lesson T. I get some of that too. Like I agree. But so yeah, the flip side of this is like, yeah, your swing sucks. And you've got like these death moves in there that are just not, you're not going to strike it well. You're not going to have good ground contact. The face is too open or closed. You're hitting it all over the map. Well, yeah, then I would say like, of course, don't quote unquote, swing your swing. But my preference would be is, okay, can we take this golfer and work with their tendencies and improve upon them? I don't think most people have the appetite for these like major swing overhauls. I think there's a small percentage of golfers who are willing to pay for it and go through what it takes. I think the rest of them, based on what I've seen in golf, it's more of a path of least resistance thing is like, you know what? I'm playing 20 times a year. I have this amount of time to practice per week. I've got, you know, a job, a family, all these things. I don't have time to like start changing this whole thing completely. So that's when I would say like, I get that if the player like stinks and is having really bad results on the course, we don't want them technically to swing their swing, but I still think they can have some version of that DNA and and make it better. But of course, if the results are really bad, like, yeah, you're going to have to change something to get better. Like, that's a given. The counter to that slightly is you look at the worst looking swings, right? And what defines function within, in that swing? And it's the micro, the stuff we talk about, the ground contact, the face contact, the face direction. So I can look at a swing and say, well, yeah, that's a horrible looking motion. The best it's going to produce is maybe a 20 yard fade. But I can also say, let's make that swing produce the best it can. And you can make any swing. You can bring it to function with very minimal change. So if you've got a guy who's shanking the hell out of it, theoretically, if you get them to set up out of the toe and make the exact same swing, they're now flushing it, as we talked about in the last episode. You can take that guy who's hitting that 30-yard slice. He's missing the fairway 30 yards right every time with his driver. If you can get him to close the face two or three degrees, you're not going to see a difference on camera, but you'll see a difference in the outcome. That's going to now be a power fade onto the target. And if you can get that player who's fatting it, hitting two inches behind it, but they have their low point in the right place, if you can get them to dig less deep, which might require a quarter of an inch of change in arc depth. Again, you're not going to see a change in this swing. Nothing's going to change mechanically on the, on the video, but they will hit noticeably better results. So I always kind of separate those things out. I look at a player and say, okay, well, we could change this motion to open up new ground and to raise the bar for them. But we could also fill up the bar of where, where it is already or get them to jump the bar where they've set it. 
And so there's both ways of looking at it. And it's very, e not very easy, but it doesn't require a lot of change to bring any swing to function. And that all makes sense to me. I had another thought pop in my mind because, again, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the other side of it. I also, this is my interpretation of what I saw. I think one of the reasons why it can be a crappy phrase and people don't like it is because if you say swing your swing to someone, one reaction to that is, oh, it is inaction, meaning everything's great. Just keep doing what you're doing. That, of course, I think in a literal sense, like, yeah, then if someone heard swing your swing and then they'd just be like, oh, I'm not going to change anything. And yeah, they're probably going to remain a poor golfer. And that's why, you know, I think a lot of people think that phrase sucks. Again, that is not the way I view swing your swing. But my belief is, is that that is one interpretation of it. I am absolutely not implying inaction when I tell someone to swing their swing. If you keep approaching the same the game in the same way and you don't change your practice habits or you don't seek instruction and in getting help, of course, then you're going to stink and remain your whatever handicap. I think that was the only other response. Swing your swing and stay at 20 handicap and never get better. That's what I thought like that meant is like, oh, then you're when you're saying swing your swing, you're implying just do nothing. And I'm not saying that at all. Like if this whole show is about how you can improve. So that's, I guess, it's a problem with Twitter is like, you'll say something and then people, you could put words in someone's mouth and they didn't mean that. So I, that's why I stopped responding. I'm like, hey, I can't put all of this into 280 characters. I'm not even going to try. And they still might disagree with me. And that's totally cool too. But I'm absolutely not implying inaction. And I think you can still swing your swing and get better with a lot of the, the stuff that I've done or you say and absolutely get better. And I think a lot of people are implying, well, no, that's not possible because you're lucky and you you're an outlier. I don't believe that. I think that's a falsehood. No one's saying or we're trying not to say inaction. I don't want to say inaction either. I think that's a bad thing. Swing your swing in itself to me isn't inaction necessarily. It all stems from this belief that we need huge changes to achieve huge outcomes. And that's just not true. We should know by now the physics is there. We have launch monitors. If you want to change a 30-yard slice to the right, you just need to close the face two or three degrees. That doesn't need a huge monumental change in your mechanics to achieve that. If you want to take a player who's fatting it by two inches, all they might need to do is raise the arc up out of the ground a quarter of an inch. And it's a completely different result. You're not going to see a hugely different swing. So to me, swing your swing on the macro level might be in action. But it's not complete inaction because on the micro level, you are influencing something. But when most people say, don't swing your swing, they're saying, don't change your macro. And I'm saying, no, you can get better without changing your macro. And if you don't believe me, I can prove it to you. So what do you think about in the instance? So there is a group saying, no, I want you to change the macro too and improve the micro. Let's make this look different, perform different. Do you, you think that's possible? It has to be. I think I've seen examples of that before. 
a hundred percent. And I do it all the time as an instructor. Even when I say you don't have to change your macro, it doesn't mean I never change macro with pupils. No, I do it all the time. If I deem it necessary, if I think that something is going to add to a player's consistency, if I think something's going to help them perform a certain pattern that they want more often and better, then I will change that macro pattern. But I'm also working a hell of a lot with players on building the micro patterns as well. And so, you know, if you get a player who is a slicer of the ball and they want to hit a draw, we're going to have to change something in the macro for that, generally. I mean, you could cheat it just by aiming them more to the right, but we're generally going to have to change something in the macro. But I understand and I help my players understand that, look, your results are going to be a result of the micro. What's happening with the ground contact, the face contact, the face direction? So we're constantly building those skills as well. I'm almost done now, John, on the four. <laughs> We've done, what, three hours on four? I thought the we just did again. I thought we just did against. I'm so confused. No, now. I'm, I'm still like, on, oh, we're done here. <laughs> no, I'm still on the I'm still on the argument for change your swing. Oh, well, yeah. that was my argument against was that, yeah, your swing sucks. You got to do something. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, because uh, I, yeah, yeah, it crosses over. My view was if your interpretation of that is total inaction in your game and not changing your habits, then yeah, that phrase sucks. If that was your, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and not change a thing. Then yeah, I would say swing your swing would be, that would be a bad way to interpret it. I don't even know if I have that much more to say against it because it would be that simple to me. If, if that's what you think swing your swing means and you don't change, then yeah, you will not get better at golf. I've got a few counter arguments and I'm sure you can riff off me. I mean, lots of it will be similar to what we've covered already, but there's some unique stuff in here as well. So taking some notes off Twitter, David Lettieri, he said he believes swing your swing. He believes somewhere in between. So he's definitely in favor of working with what comes naturally, but there are also principles and laws of physics that you can't ignore and need to leverage to your advantage as much as possible. I agree completely. There are certain things in physics you can't ignore, or I'd say I'd add geometry to that. So for example, if you're shanking it, yes, you can't swing your swing, right? You're going to have to make some change there, whether it's a micro change or a macro change. I mean, it could be as simple as, like I said, setting up a little bit more out of the toe, trying to hit the toe, standing a little farther away, and then swinging your swing. That would reduce the shank. Or you could take a more macro look and change something bigger mechanically. The low point of your swing being behind the ball, for example, players who do that, they can hit good shots, but they're not very versatile. They won't be able to hit off many lies. And you found this when you used to have that very shallow angle of attack, John, the zero angle attack. You are very good and you're highly skilled and you have to be highly skilled with the zero angle attack. You'll be able to hit it off pristine fairways, but stick you in a divot and you probably struggle. Put you in heavy rough and you'd probably struggle out of that. So I know you've changed that since your low points more forward angle attack is a little bit more down. So it makes you more versatile. Yeah. And that is a perfect example of that just happened over the course of years, but it didn't involve, again, something obviously changed in my pattern. I don't know what it was because I wasn't focused on that part of it. I was just focused on satisfying that task and reacting to my ball flight because I knew I could tell in certain situations, like you said, that was holding me back. Little by little, I got a little less inside and a little more negative angle of attack to now I'm hitting more neutral ball flights that are straightish or tight draw. And I know we don't like 
a lot of people don't like reading divots, but now I'm taking those like massive divots that fly like 20 feet in front of me. So obviously something changed, whereas before I was kind of picking it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that makes you more versatile off different lies as well. So yeah, if someone has their low point behind the ball, geometrically, yes, they can hit good golf shots. They can, but the ball has to be teed up pretty nicely for that, for them to do that consistently. Whereas someone who has their low point in front of the ball, like every single professional out there with irons we're talking, they're going to be, it's going to be a much easier game for them. So the analogy I use there is if you're shooting a gun at a target and you're bouncing on a trampoline, you can do it, but sometimes it's easier just to get off the trampoline. And so for me, (laughs) I look at what are trampolines in the golf swing? And one of those is low point behind. There aren't actually too many, but I'm not, I'll leave that for another podcast or people can buy my programs, <laughs> learn what the trampolines are. You could look at, you know, in terms of physics as well. And again, geometry, if someone has the face like 20 degrees open to the path, for example, or even 10 degrees open to the path, you could hit good shots with that. You know, if you're swinging 15 degrees left and your face is like, seven or five degrees left you'll hit a big old fade onto the target with irons the problem with that is from an efficiency standpoint you're not going to be getting the same smash factors that ball's going to be going shorter than normal because you're not taking a direct hit into impact its path and face are so misaligned that there's going to be an efficiency issue you're going to be cutting across it so much a lot of lot of energy lost so in that case yes you can swing your swing and hit good shots but your upper end your limit your bar is going to be set much lower because you're not just you're just not going to be hitting it far enough or as far as you could certainly and also when you do things like that as well when you if say a player had a 10 degree left swing with a 5 degree left face what they would find is different patterns with different clubs. Their wedges would be pulled left, their seven iron would go on the target, and their driver would slice off the planet to the right with the same path and face presentation. So it's, that's why it's important to not get too far out of whack with these things from a geometry point of view. I think that's an important argument against swing your swing. Tommy J said, I don't think it's specific or intentional enough. And uh, what he means here is like, if, if you just go out and you say, swing your swing, well, what do you think about then? What do you fill your head with? Because as golfers, especially, we can't have our mind completely blank. I mean, you can, you can, there are stories of playing in the zone where you're not thinking of much, but for the most part, we as humans like to think about something or concentrate on something, have some kind of task and goal in front of us. And so I, I agree with that. I think often we need a thought or feel to focus on. And in many cases, this can actually be the opposite of our tendencies. So for example, John, when we as players are hitting too much on the toe, what do we do? What do we think of? Strike the heel. Yeah, exactly. We do the opposite. We think of the opposite of the pattern, that golden rule. Take your fault, try the opposite or feel some of the opposite until it's neutralized. So basically, that's not swinging your swing, is it? In fact, it's the opposite. It's taking your swing and trying the opposite. Similarly, if you're hitting these big old hooks. Thinking back, I can't think of one article I ever wrote and it's not in my book either. I don't actually use this phrase ever. (laughs) What, swing your swing? Yeah, I don't use it functionally. Like I, I have different ways of explaining it because I think there's so many different 
golf's not that simple. And if you if you take something like that so literal, then of course it falls short because as that person on Twitter said, it's just not specific enough. You can't yeah. paint enough color to that picture by just telling someone go on out there and swing your swing like great now what (laughs) i mean that's ultimately we do on the show is we're we're trying to paint that picture a little bit more clearly for you so you can solve your own problems hopefully i would agree that's a very con for swing your swing is what does that even mean and it's not specific enough give me more and i think that's a very fair response I'm in the same boat as you, John. As much as I've talked for two hours about the four <laughs> argument of swinging I've swing, never seen I don't you use it, it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We are trying to come to the other side of this. Like, you'll go scan my book. Do I don't know if you can do a search on it on the Kindle or something or my website. I don't think you'll see it anywhere. <laughs> I, th- I think there are certainly more topics on the four argument. And I'll go through a, a, the summary at the end when I do use it. I do use it sometimes. But yeah, for the most part, I'm not telling players to swing their swing. Like you said, we often need something that's more specific. And usually it needs to be a, an intention or a feel or a mechanical move that neutralizes our poor tendencies. Because every golfer out there is going to have a poor tendency. Usually, if you if if you're hitting shots, there's going to be some kind of tendency within there that you could neutralize. Maybe it's a little bit off the toe today. Maybe it's a little bit fatter today. Maybe it's a little bit too much left. And so there's something you can do to fix it. Now, occasionally you'll wake up and maybe 1% of your rounds, you're just flushing everything. You don't need to think about anything. That's a great time for when swing your swing would work really well or be great advice. But yeah, it's oftentimes we can be doing the complete opposite of our swing. If you're hitting big hooks, John, you tend to try and swing more left with an open face. So you're basically doing the opposite of what your swing in air quotes is, or you're feeling the opposite of it. Now, whether it looks too different on camera is another thing. It might not look that different on camera, but certainly we're changing the micro elements. And I know Lou Stagner, who we've had on several times and we will have on more, he's got data with players where... He asked them, and hopefully Lou's okay with me saying this, to hit fades and draws. And then he asked them what their dominant shape was. And he actually found that more people hit it tighter, so hit a a tighter dispersion, when they were playing their opposite pattern. So in other words, if you are a drawer of the golf ball, he found more drawers hit better patterns when they tried to fade it. Which actually makes sense when you think about what we talk about, John, which is fighting fire with fire, right? We're fighting your tendency with the opposite, or I should say fighting fire with water then. But yeah, you know, fighting your tendency with the opposite of that tendency. Taking your fault, trying the opposite. And so, yeah, when I'm a drawer of the golf ball, naturally, if I don't think of anything, if I just swing my swing, I'll hit a draw. And sometimes that draw gets too big. I don't like it. I don't like seeing the ball curve more than 10 yards onto my target. And so in those scenarios, I try to feel more of a fade swing. Now, I might not be hitting a fade when I'm feeling that. I might be hitting just a tighter draw or a straighter shot, but I'm certainly feeling the opposite. So that's a a place where swinging your swing or actually swinging the opposite of your swing can actually help you or may help you, I should say. Nothing's as certain in golf. Also, you know, with the the phrase, different topic here, with the phrase swing your swing, it doesn't mean it's a free for all. And I think that that's the biggest false dichotomy is that when we say swing your swing, or if it's ever said, usually there's instructors saying, oh, no, you can't just swing it anyway. 
And I like, yeah, we agree with that. We can't just swing it anyway. You know, not every way works. If if every backswing you make, you take a hundred yard run up, that's probably not an efficient way of doing it. <laughs> that's why I got Twitter. I'm assuming most people who listen to this show aren't on Twitter, but that's why it could be a tough medium sometimes because you'll say something and of course you can't give like a ton of context to it. And then you get like 50 responses where you're like, oh, well, you didn't say I'm like, of course, I didn't mean it that way when I initially tweeted it. But, you know, I could see that it's like a bad game of telephone or, you know, you, someone sees that's why I find it an interesting medium, too. And it's helped me as a writer because I've seen how people react to certain phrases and words, how differently they do. And that's why I, I asked the question on this initially. It was uh, I think it's fascinating to me. But sometimes you can't the literal responses are like yeah don't swing your swing as you said if it's at the happy gilmore swing or something like that of course duh <laughs> yeah you know if someone jumps three does a vertical three foot jump as they in their downswing we're not saying like anything goes swing your swing is not a free-for-all it's just saying that in certain circumstances if what you have can produce functional shots then it's okay so it's just a false dichotomy to say never never change your swing versus always be tinkering there's gray areas in between. You know, Tiger was a great example of mastering that gray area or mastering both of those ends of the spectrum. He could, in practice, work really hard and mechanically on the motion when he's training. But then he also had the ability to completely turn it off during play and swing his swing in air quotes, even if that swing were to evolve over time through his training. So this is where periodization comes in. What I talk about in my book, The Practice Manual, my guide for golfers, I talk about how to periodize, how to do these things, when to be thinking of changing your swing versus when to be stabilizing everything and working more on performance elements. Another note I have here, the idea, if you want to get better, you must change something. This is true. You must change something. If you want to get better than where you are now, you absolutely must change something. But as we've talked about, it doesn't necessarily mean a big change. You can have big outcome changes with small input changes, like hitting a little bit more of the toe, closing or opening the face a little bit, changing your arc depth, changing your low point position subtly can have a huge or, or effect. Some players, it's a grip change. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. They, maybe they were just gripping it too strong and you weaken a bit. And you're like, whoa, totally different club face presentation. I'm hitting better shots now. Not always, but that's possible. I had a good player the other day who was suffering with missing to the right. And, you know, I'm looking at the numbers on the quad and the face is like two degrees too open. And I just said, close the face a couple of degrees at address. And he looked at me, he's like, what? I said, try it. So he did. He closed the face a couple of degrees at address, then gripped it, and all of a sudden started hitting these flush shots onto the target. He's like, but I can't do that. That's not the right way of doing it. So I took him onto my laptop, and I showed him the gears average. Do you know the gears average tall pro sets up five degrees closed at address? <laughs> so he really? was okay. Yeah, he was okay with it then. Yeah. That's I wild. mean, there's a, there's a 3D reason for that as well. You know, the face is like a 3D element, so it's slightly toe up, which makes the face more left. But he was uh, more open. Yeah, he was more open to setting up with uh, it's slightly closed. I mean, visually to me, I was looking at it and going, it doesn't even look any different, but the results are different and he was okay with it. So yeah, small areas obviously can make changes. And again, you know, the quote that Einstein was wrong or the Einstein quote was wrong, that you can do the same thing over and over and, and get different results sometimes. So it doesn't always have to be 
that you have to change something, but probably going back into the arguments for again here. So I'll <laughs> try totally and off on. the map. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there are certain movements that make the game easier as well. So for example, forward shaft lean later release. I know Sasho McKenzie, I'm try- actually trying to get the study. I heard it on the Chasing Scratch podcast with Jason Nickel, a great golf coach. And he was talking about the Sasho study where he's found lower club face variance and like better arc height control or something like that when you have more forward shaft lean. And these things make sense from a geometry point of view. So more forward shaft lean, later release. There's a reason why every pro has those things. I've always felt like it was a stabilizing factor when I kind of figured that out a bit. And I will credit, I know you hate that DST trainer, but I don't like it. (laughs) I found that it felt like the club face was more stable through the impact interval by holding that that angle more. So it makes sense to me from my experience. I think how I used to play is I would try and time my release and I was probably an early releaser. So I was letting like the club head pass me early and the ball was just going all over the place. Whereas now I feel like I have my hands like locked more and it's more stable. But that's just my like that's my anecdotal feels. That's not yeah. universal. Obviously Sasha's done his computer modeling on it. Then we have the fact that almost every single pro has a later release to back that up, at least from a correlation standpoint. And then from my own teaching experience, when I produce a later release in players, they tend to, over time, get better. And even in my own game, there are pros out there who have a slightly early release. I have an early release. Lee Westwood has an earlier release. He had a pretty good record. But I do find from a personal perspective, if I add a slightly later release, I do. It doesn't feel like the game is a little easier for me. And like I said, there's reasons in geometry and physics for that as well. Similarly, like we talked about, low point being ahead of the ball instead of behind it makes it easier to contact the ground correctly. Lowers the sensitivity. If you drop up and down in height, your ground contact will stay more consistent when the low point is in front. Something I talk about in the strike plan a lot. Hand path working up and in as well, as opposed to working down and out through impact. So most of the pros have that. Almost all the pros have that. Some of the better pros have it in greater amounts. Similarly, reasonable head movement as well. I'm not saying to completely minimize head movement, but if your head is jumping up and down, moving a foot off the ball either side, it's going to be a harder game for you. Obviously, with all these things, there's a law of diminishing returns. It's not a case of more is better. You just have to kind of get yourself in the ballpark here. And so when I see someone that's out of the ballpark with these things, that's a good case to say, right, let's not swing your swing here. Let's add some of these elements. I try and do it in a functional way as well. So say, for example, if I'm trying to add a later release into someone's swing, I try to tell them, only do that feeling if you need to fix fat shots and or left shots. Because that's what a later release does. It adds consistency to the overall motion, but it also makes the face more open. And it also moves the ground contact forwards. So it, it needs to be done in, in the right time, kind of algorithmically. So yeah, there's certain things that make the game easier in the swing, certain movements that make the game easier. But even if those movements are in there, you still have to do the big three, right? You could take someone with an early release who's doing it okay, who's hitting these high, weak shots, but they're hitting it okay. You can make them have a later release and they could hit it like crap because they're now thinning it or topping it. So adding these elements that make the game easier is still not a guarantee. The only thing that guarantees good shots is the big three. Charles Barkley. John, 
You want to take that one? Oh, yeah, Charles. <laughs> I'm glad you brought him up because I forgot. I, I was thinking about this too, is that that's a perfect example of Don't say his way. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just baffling that a guy, that kind of athlete was just so, so, so bad at golf. And I think, and he, and he had access to top instructors. I think he had, he was on that Hank Haney show yeah. and Hank couldn't fix it. I think it was Stan Utley that finally helped him. And now his swing looks better. It doesn't look the same. That's for sure. He's not swinging his swing anymore. It looks different. So that he's a perfect example. If that's where you were leading me, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes back to that. It's not a free for all. The phrase swing your swing yeah. is not everybody should do it all the time. It's like, no, if you swing like Charles Barkley did, yeah, no. then don't swing <laughs> <Yes>. your swing. <laughs> but even then you could think of that and you could say, how did Charles Barkley develop such a horrible looking swing? And it's very likely I've seen players develop swings like that. And you know what? In most cases, it's those players trying not to swing their own swing. In other words, they're taking advice from other people often misinterpreting it, and then it turns into something horrendous like that. Whenever I see a weird move from a player, in most cases, at some point in their history, they've tried to do that. So say, for example, players who get their keep-your-head-down advice. What happens? Their sequence looks horrible. They end up staying on their back foot. They end up with a horrible-looking end position. They create no speed. They're flippy at the bottom. All those things were probably intentionally created by that head down advice. Or, you know, someone misinterprets something with wrist angles and then all of a sudden they do something weird at the bottom. Then they do something extra weird to try and correct and match up with it incorrectly. And it just develops into a monstrosity. Most people, if you give them a stick and you just ask them to swish it, even some of the most unathletic people can make something that looks reasonably good. It's only after time, after poor advice, after poor interpretations, does their swing develop into something like Charles Barkley. I was actually listening to a good thing from Sasho McKenzie the other day. He was on a podcast and he said, he was talking about, imagine two players, right? They've never played golf before and they both make a swing and they copy, they said, copy this pro, just make a swing that looks like this. And they both make a swing and it looks reasonably athletic, right? So imagine they played other sports before. And then both players standing and hit one shot. Player A stands in, hits one shot, and it's a decent shot. They hit it out of the center. It flies reasonably well. It flies up in the air. Player B makes a very similar macro motion and shanks it right. Now there's a a kind of sliding doors-esque thing that's going to happen from here. Player A, who hit the good shot, is probably going to continue to try and make that motion because that good shot had the initial success. Player B, who shanked it right, what are they going to do on the next swing? They're going to probably try and swing left, right? That's what instinct would say. Oh, my, that ball went right. I'm going to try and swing left across this next one. And then from there, they then start to hang back on their backside. So basically, they negatively self-organize. You know, we talk a lot about positive self-organization, where your body kind of figures things out. But there's also a hell of a lot of negative self-organization, where your body can try and figure things out incorrectly that can happen. I would say that's what most golfers are doing when they practice, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why conceptual stuff is so important. Understanding, like the awareness of why did that ball go right? How do you make a ball go more left? This is why I start almost all of my lessons and build the knowledge with players before we even really do technical stuff or experimental stuff. I tell a player like, okay, first goal of this game is you got to hit the center of the face. 
Here's how we build awareness of that. Spray the club face. Let's go and hit some shots. I show them. I say, this is what happens if you hit a shank. This is what happens if you hit a toe. Go off and practice it. What did it sound like? What did it feel like? So I'm building their concepts first. That really guards then against negative self-organization when a player has good concepts. I found that when that player who understands that, oh, that ball went 90 degrees right, that was probably a toe shank. And it felt and sounded like a toe shank. Oh, that's what I need to fix. That player is going to be in a much better position than the player who toe shanks it right and thinks, huh, maybe I have to swing more left. <laughs> that's going to be a disaster for the player. So concepts are hugely important. So yeah, don't swing your swing. Your, sw your swing, especially for a beginner, can negatively self-organize and make sure you guard yourself against that by understanding things like impact physics. Yeah, it can be a game of opposites, right? <laughs> yeah. Some people think to make the ball go to the one side, they have to swing in that direction. And yeah, sometimes the blind squirrel gets the nut though. But yeah. for the most part, we see a lot of golfers who are struggling. Blind squirrels lose them. Yeah, and sometimes I don't think for everyone learning the ball flight laws is going to solve it. But I think it'll give them a better chance. That's really what all this is about is just giving people a better chance to hit better shots. Yeah. On the topic we've talked about, Michael Hutchison, he said, swing your swing unless it's leading to poor impact variables. Obviously, we agree with that. Again, you can change micro. You don't necessarily have to change that macro. I would give a caveat there. There are many, I don't want to swear too much on this, but many awful ideas as to what leads to poor impact variables. So lots of players will say, oh, I'm hitting it bad because my takeaway is slightly off. It's like, that's not the reason why you're hitting it bad, dude. And I, I did a tweet this morning that talked about there are certain things that you can change in a swing that are going to have a higher percentage influence on the desired impact variable. So, for example, if I get 100 golfers who are fatting it and I make them turn their right foot out, flare their right foot out at a dress, there might be 5% of players who will fat it less with that. There might be a hell of a lot who would fat it more, and there might be a lot of players who it just doesn't influence their fat shot. Whereas if I get the same 100 players to shift their weight more aggressively towards the target, you know, earlier, more, then that's going to have a much bigger effect on ground contact. It's rooted in geometry. It's rooted in instructional science. So there are things that have a higher percentage influence and things that have a lower percentage influence. I would say that so many golfers are just working on the lower percentage influences. Some players are even working on things that go against what they should be doing. So for example, the player who's fatting it, who's then trying to keep their head down, that's going to make it worse for you. If you have poor impact variables, you're probably going to need to change something, but make sure the change you're making actually relates and has a high percentage influence on the variable you're trying to do what else i do have a few but i'm almost done john <laughs> oh my god we did it we're finally getting to the no, end and we're at our mark I was probably another 15 minutes in me so scratch journey golf said it's especially bad for new players the idea of swing your swing that leads into poor self-organization again so another example of that might be a player who has a hugely cupped left wrist at the top and then they have massive slices Okay, so that player is going to start to swing worse over time. You know, if you tell that player to swing your swing, they're going to swing worse over time because as they're slicing it off to the right, they're going to start to self-organize a more left path. They might have to be told more directly, okay, let's get this lead wrist in a better position. 
So yeah, I mean, we discussed that before. That's just another example there. The other argument against swing your swing is, as we've discussed, I don't tell players to swing their swing very often. What I do for players is I add tools for them and I add algorithms to their toolbox that allow them to fix faults in a way that slowly evolves their swing motion. So in other words, I do make direct changes to a player's macro motion even. However, it always has a function in mind. It's never based on aesthetics alone. And it always tries to maintain the player's DNA if it's not relevant to function. So for example, you can't tell where an Adam Young golf swing is, right? If you looked at all my players, they all look so different. And they all look very similar to what they look like. (laughs) They all have their unique DNA. Whereas there are some methods out there, whereas you can look from across the range and you can say, oh, that guy's a, that guy's an X method disciple. You know, there's a, a pretty famous instructor in California. And when I worked in California, I'd often see players on the range doing the motions that I know he teaches. And I, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a X coach disciple there. <laughs> Unnamed coach disciple. Yeah, you could tell that that swing was from that coach, right? So often, th- and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I'd rather people stick to one method, one coach than anything. But I think if you're boxing all of your players into the same method, there's a certain thing that you're doing that's kind of stylistic and not so functional necessarily. So I, I always try, and I think most coaches are leading towards things that are just functional now. And also, you know, I, I'm always adding a lot of skill work as well, but I am making changes to players' swings. I'm making changes to players' macro motions a lot of the time. Not all the time, but a lot of the time I am. I just make sure to balance it with all the, the micro stuff as well. I'm done here, John. I got a few closing statements, but overall, I think I've done my arguments for the against. I'm not willing to die on the hill of swing your swing. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm like that passionate about the phrase. And I acknowledge that there are multiple reactions when people hear that phrase, which is why I haven't used it that often because, again, it's, it's as people criticize it, it's just not specific enough. So I totally agree with that. So I would say if swing your swing means to you don't do anything and have complete inaction, then yeah, that's not productive. But on the flip side, as I said, I, I do like it and it fits with some of my philosophy on the game is that, you know, saying that we have to take ownership of our swing and not chase some other version of the golf swing that doesn't come natural to us. That doesn't mean you can't do meaningful like mechanical or skill work on your golf swing and change it a little bit. But again, it still seems to be your fingerprint because ultimately the goal I want for any golfer, whether we use this phrase or not, is that they step on the course with a good idea of their patterns. They have a clear head over the ball And more importantly, when things aren't going well, they maybe have a few cues to hopefully not solve the problem, but at least limit the damage. I mean, that that is one of the big questions that golf's asks of us is how can you, you know, you got to show up to the the course with a different pattern every day in terms of our, our big three. Maybe you're pulling them, maybe you're pushing them, your fade is turned into a slice or your draw is into a hook and you're like, now what? That is your swing and you have to swing it, but maybe there's a few little things you can do to make adjustments. So again, I don't use it myself, but I think it could have some value. And on the flip side, I think it could be 
if you interpret it a different way, it could be a really crappy phrase too. So yeah, no right answers. That That's how golf works. Like we just interpret words differently based on all of our experiences. And hopefully this was a uh, productive thought exercise. And if you didn't like the episodes, we'll, we'll do something different next time. <laughs> Well, I like this episode. <laughs> I like I mean I like it. I like talking about this. I mean, this is more definitely your world because obviously you know way more about the golf swing than me. I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy exploring things. I just I think it's fascinating, as I said on Twitter when I, I knew when I said it, like what do you think when you hear this phrase I was gonna get both sides of it? And I think that's interesting. And I don't again, I don't think anyone's right or wrong. I think everyone can have their own way of coming to this. I think the only people who are wrong in this are the people who are, who are very black and white about it. Well, yeah, if you're being too literal and like, I think there was p- potentially some bad faith stuff. It's like, oh, well, then you must think that people who suck should never change. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, I literally wrote a book on how you can change your game. <laughs> like, and I, I don't want an action. That's crazy. I'm trying to help people and get better. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's the same for for me when people say I'm not a mechanical coach and I'm like, I wrote a whole chapter in my book about technique changes. (laughs) But, you know, I think the only wrong people here are the black and white people. The reality is, and this is undeniable, is there's a time and a place for both. There's a time and a place where swing your swing is correct. And there's a time and a place where don't swing your swing is correct. Overall, I would say on the end of the scale, I'm not a swing your swing kind of guy in general, but I see you times where it's appropriate. So when do I say swing your swing? Well, there's a few scenarios. When a player's self-sabotaging by overthinking, constantly tinkering and obsessing to the point that they're no longer playing the game, we look at alternative ways of improving and swing your swing might be a good phase for that player. Also, if a player's mechanics are good enough to shoot a much lower score than what they're doing, So if I see a player and I'm like, you know what? I could shoot scratch level golf with that swing. And they tell me they're a 25 handicap. I might find alternative ways. We might might have to go down the conceptual route, the skill developing route, the strategy route. Maybe they're just complete nutcase on the course. We might find other ways in that example. If a player has very little time as well, we have to take these things into account. And if they're happy to play just their best golf more often, say they come to me and I'm like, how often do you practice? And I'm like, what's practice? <laughs> <laughs> I barely play. I play once a month. I'm like, well, I can still make you better. You know, lots of some instructors might say, oh, I can't help you. But no, you can still make a player better even if they play once a month or, or whatever. So if they're happy to play their best golf more often, we're going to look more at skill, concept, strategy, small micro changes that are going to have a big effect on them. When a player is obsessing over changing a quirk or trait that's purely a style thing as well. So I've seen lots of players like obsessing over their inside, slightly inside takeaway or slightly outside takeaway. And it's nothing that's actually affecting something that they need from a functional and geometry standpoint. Like they might be working, oh, my takeaway is slightly inside and I'm healing it. I'm like, dude, there's so many better ways to fix that heel shot than working on this style element. Yeah, I might go that way. I might keep that player swinging their own swing and change this their strike through a different route. Also, when a player's peaking for their tournament, you probably want to swing your swing then. You probably don't want to be making wholesale changes to your macro movement when a big tournament is coming up. It's very unlikely that if you, Lewis Hamilton doesn't jump into a brand new car 
right before an event. He's going to do a car that he has practiced a lot, that he's used to, that he's comfortable with. You cannot cram for that test. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other bullet point, if I feel more can be done with skill work than technique work, I might also swing your swing. So for example, if a player has an arc depth issue, Overall, everything's reasonably well. Low point is good. Angle attack is good. Face to path is good. Strike is good. But they just keep fatting it a little bit. That's their pattern. Well, in that case, I might, again, keep their swing the same and just change something on a micro level. Maybe change the arc depth by a quarter of an inch, and that's going to have a huge effect. Even less than that, sometimes a huge effect on ground contact. Or even something like face strike, as we've talked about. I There's so many times where I've taken a before of a shanker, a before video of a shanker, and then an after video of a shanker, and they've completely eliminated their shank, and their swing looks exactly the same. And I'm like, I want to post it, because I want to say, look, we, we took this player from 10 out of 10 shanks in the first five minutes, minutes to now he's at zero shanks i made him better and i want to post the swing before and after but i just know so many people just don't understand it they would just fry their head they'd be like why oh that's completely unethical to not change their motion but you know what sometimes i do that and i have good results with that when someone can produce better results without overthinking it as well so again that goes into the person who's constantly tinkering well what if a player sometimes i get a player and i say if I find they're overly analytical, I say, try this little thing for me. Just entertain me for a moment. Walk into the shot and hit it without thinking. Spend no more than two seconds over the ball. So walk in, set up, hit. So I'm basically not giving them enough time to think. And sometimes I'll do that with a player. And in more cases than not, they hit it better. They hit it more consistent and tighter. And that can be a case of saying, you know what? For now, if you want those kind of results do that. Just swing your swing. Stop overthinking about it. Maybe, you know, we go in and out of these phases where we look to long-term development, but especially if they've got a tournament coming up or they just want to play well now, that can be a good opportunity for them to not think about it. Just get in and hit it. All right. Now the opposite, the opposite, my notes for the opposite. When do I say change your swing? Well, the golden rule, right? Whenever you've got a fault, try the opposite. So if you've got a fault that's really hurting you, like a shank, you've got to do something. You've got to have some tool, whether it's as simple as just the intention of hitting the opposite side of the club that can be trained and improved, or whether it's more mechanical thing, macro or micro, you've got to have a, something to change your swing that changes and neutralizes that bad pattern. The other time I might say change your swing is when a player's best shot is not good enough for what they want to achieve in the game. Or if it's not what they desire. So say, for example, they're slicing across it 10 degrees and their best shot is a weak fade onto the target and they want to reach a handicap that their distance is just not going to allow them to. We might look at neutralizing that path and face. We probably would look at neutralizing that path and face so they get more efficiency, higher smash factor, more distance. And also, you know, if a player is hitting that fade and they want to hit a draw, you've got to change your swing. So if that player really, really wants to hit that draw, they have to change their swing. Usually I steer faders more towards neutralizing the fade, you know, making less of a fade. But I don't like to change player shot shapes necessarily unless they really desire it. The other time is if if a player is doing something that's affecting consistency. So, for example, if their low point is behind, early release, other consistency things, maybe they're dive bombing through the ball, you know, their body and chest is dropping down significantly through impact. 
Those are all things that can affect things from a consistency standpoint, or even if there's something that's causing injury. I have taken players who are functional, but they're doing something that's very injurious. You know, I had a player recently who's kind of their lower body in the swing is jumping up and their upper body is staying down. So you can imagine this scenario, the lower body moving up, the upper body staying down as they're turning and twisting. That was causing a lot of stress on their lower lower back. And so we neutralized it and they had to go through a period of poor performance, but at least they were saving their back. There are some things more important than playing well all the time. Sometimes we have to take a step back and say, I got to continue to play this game for longer. So if anything is causing injury, I'd say change your swing as well. So... Yeah, I mean, my closing, the other closing statement, I'd rather someone be able to change an impact variable through skill and intent first beyond everything. So, you know, changing your ability to strike the face just through skill and intent, that is much more valuable for me. Reason being that when they master that, it's easy to apply to any swing they choose in the future. So, for example, because I and you, John, have mastered the skill of being able to hit different parts of the face, Should we desire to change our swing in the future? Should you want to look more textbook in the future? It's actually easier for you to achieve that because you can refine the center of the face. That makes sense? Yeah. I think if you gave me a entirely different golf club or something like that, that just, you know, maybe a super whippy shaft or something like I'd probably figure it out in five minutes. Exactly. So skill is hugely important for being adaptable. And even so players, again, this false dichotomy of is it skill work, micro changes, or is it macro changes and technique work? No, there's no false dichotomy there. You can actually do both. And in fact, skill work, improved skill supports your ability to make macro changes as well. All right, I'm done, John. Sorry. That is, well, my, jeez, I was just like, (laughs) I'm actually standing at this point. Listen, that was like the biggest finale you've ever had. It was like fireworks going off. Is that standing ovation or you just need some more blood in your legs? Yeah, it's just like, I'm thinking of, (laughs) I went to Disney last year with the kids and and we we stayed up for the Epcot fireworks and it was just like that. It just went up, it kept going and then you're like, just a big explosion at the end. No, I think those are, in all seriousness, those are all very well-rounded, good points. All right, just go plug our stuff now, John. So yeah, if you if you like our podcast, if you want to support us, I mean, leave a review. That's the free thing that you could do. It does help, keeps us going, giving you free stuff all the time. But obviously, if you really want to support us and learn more about stuff, we, we have products. I've got my practice manual book where you can learn about periodization that we've mentioned during these podcasts, how to structure your practice, what are important conceptual elements. And then I've got video products on my website adamyounggolf.com. If you go into that forward slash products, you'll see everything that I have to offer there. And John, I know you have things to offer golfers as well. I guess I do. I have my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, available on Amazon and elsewhere online. And you can always check out some of the products I offer that I support and approve of on my website, practical-golf.com. We appreciate everyone for listening. Appreciate your feedback. and. We'll see you next time with a different topic. Yeah, thanks for bearing with me, everyone. <laughs> Goodbye. And, and my rants. <laughs> yes.